Gracious God and Father, you've promised that your holy word will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. It's been said, and I think it's true, that for every position under the sun, there is a job description of some sort. Uh, even for God, there's a job description. For pastors, there's a job description. You can look in Scripture, First uh, Timothy, uh, Titus, record these job descriptions. As we go through changes here at the church, we review job descriptions, we update them periodically. It's a good idea. And so I pose the question today, if you were to write a job description for the Lord, what would it include? What responsibilities would you want to make sure God's taking care of? Okay, I mean, we can mention several here. Uh, creating life, that's pretty important. That's the domain of God. Uh, providing food, shelter, cover for human beings, for animals, and so on. Forgiving sins, there's a biggie. And, and all of those are nice things that the Lord does. He takes care of those things. But does God ever behave in not-so-nice ways? Does the God of the Bible ever cause the death of people? Does the God of the Bible exterminate entire ethnic groups? Does he cause nations to collapse? Does he overthrow entire cities? Does he afflict individuals with illness and entire communities with plagues? Does he divide families? Dividing father against son, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Does he uproot people from their homelands and send them into exile? Finally, does God do such things to the people he loves. Well, if you answered yes to all of the above, I want to congratulate you on knowing your Bible. The God of the Bible is very different from the false gods that we imagine for ourselves. In Roman numeral one in your sermon outline, God's false and God's that are true. We create idols, point A, that are safe, harmless, and who validate our desires and our behavior. We want validation for whatever we want. We create idols who allow us to believe and to do whatever feels right. But a God who is that way, a God who's safe and who's harmless, is a God you can safely ignore. That's not a God that you can respect or fear. It's been said that the human heart is an idle factory, and, and that is indeed true. And I believe one cause of unbelief in America today is our tendency to create idols that are little more than projections of ourselves, of our own desires. 
And therefore, such idols, they're not worthy of belief at all. Point B. Such idols can be safely ignored, but the one true God will not be. The one true God says, I'm quoting Isaiah 45 here. He says this, I form the light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And that brings us to Roman numeral two. This is what Luther described as God's alien work, his strange work. And it's contained in verse 39 of our reading from Deuteronomy, our first lesson. The Lord says, I kill. He says, I wound. And the context here in Deuteronomy is the rebelliousness of his people. For generation after generation, God has patiently borne with his people who have sunk deeper and deeper into idolatry, eventually sacrificing their own children to their idols. With every generation, it got worse and worse. And so finally God intervened. Now, he had warned them. He had sent prophet after prophet to them to urge them to turn from their sinful ways, but they wouldn't listen. They killed and stoned the prophets. And so finally God said, I've had enough. I'm going to intervene and put a stop to this, put an end to the evil. And he did so by sending the people into exile, destroying Jerusalem and allowing the Babylonians to carry his people off to another place where they could serve the false gods all they want. They were such Lovers of false gods, God turned them over to them and he said, okay, you serve them and you see what it's like. You understand the difference between serving them and serving me. That is God's strange work, according to Luther. He describes this in Isaiah 28, verse 21. The strange work, the alien work that God will do is to destroy his own people to discipline them. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Point A, God does this only out of necessity to bring us to repentance. He's tried A, he's tried B, he's tried C, he's tried D. None of it's work. So now he tries E, and that is exile. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He will not leave us in our sin. He will leave no stone unturned to turn us toward him. And point B, this is the work of the law, the law of God, which reveals, reproves, and condemns sin. This is the work of the law. And, and all of us can identify with this. You know, all of us have standards. And, and when someone violates your standards, whatever they may be, I hope they're God's standards, but if someone violates your standards, you're incensed. You're offended. And if it's serious enough, you want to see justice done. You want to see the wrong righted. All of us have that moral sense within us because we're 
created by a moral being. All of us want justice when it comes to the sins of others. But when it comes to our own sins, well, we want mercy. We want mercy. And that brings us to Roman numeral 3, God's proper work. Luther distinguished this from God's strange or alien work. His proper work is contained in verse 39 as well. I make alive. I heal. And point A, such works reflect God's true nature because according to Scripture, God is love. And love is not self-seeking. Love always seeks the well-being of the other. And that's God. That's the work that's proper to his nature. You know, as parents, we discipline children, not because we enjoy it, but it's out of necessity, you see. It's a manifestation of love. This proper work of God is always distinguished from his alien or strange work. And you see this throughout Scripture. For example, uh, in, uh, in the flood of Noah, God's alien, his strange work, is the destruction of humanity. And his proper work is the salvation of Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. That's what's proper to him. That's according to his true nature. We see that in the exile where God's alien work is the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people. But his proper work is to rebuild Jerusalem. And he does that later. The exiles return. They're restored to the land. We see God's alien work in, in John chapter 11 where Jesus hears the news about Lazarus. He's very sick. And what does Jesus do? He tarries. He delays. And Lazarus dies. That's that's God's alien or strange work. But God's proper work is the resurrection of Lazarus, the restoration to life. This is what God does. And he does it because he's God. Point B. Jesus manifested the form of God. Well, before point B, uh, I cite 1 Samuel 2, 5, and 6. Uh, this is Hannah's song. And this is what she sings. The Lord brings death. The Lord makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. Now that's law and gospel. And then Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us. See, there's the alien work. But he will bind up our wounds. That's the proper work. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. That's our God. 
Condemnation is never the last word. Judgment is not the last word. But life is. Forgiveness is. Restoration is. And we see this clearly in point B. Jesus manifested the form of God. This is our second reading for today. He manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, not only becomes human, he becomes the lowest of all humanity. He becomes the servant of Yahweh. Isaiah 52 and 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him, this servant, the iniquity of us all. And take a look at the second reading for today. In verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, now, now this is gospel. This is God's proper work. Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, that's all good news. And then verses 2 through 4 are really law. This is what God expects. This is what he expects as a result of the gospel. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. These are all imperatives, they're commands. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, when you hear that, at first hearing, you think, well, that's something of a wish list. How does the Lord expect me to behave this way? It's not according to my nature. The power is not in you or your nature. The power is in the gospel. And that follows in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's equal to God in every way. But he doesn't covet that but emptied himself, not of his divinity, but he emptied himself of his privilege. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He was not humbled. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and a cross was a slave's death. It was reserved for the lowest class in society. Point C in your outline. This is the work of the gospel. To manifest verses 2 through 4, to live that way, is not through your recommitment. It is rather through the power of the gospel, God's commitment to you, that this becomes a job description that you own yourself, that you want to do. Jesus receives the wrath of God so that we might receive the mercy of God. And point D, this good news empowers Christian living. This is our job description.
and without verses 5 through 11, verses 1 through 4, is really nothing more than a wish list. But with verses 5 through 11, verses 1 through 4 become not just an outward job description, but an inward agenda. It becomes the heart's desire of the one who is transformed by the gospel. My friends, the more you understand your Lord and Savior, the more you are a little Christ to those around you. And the more you meditate on verses 5 through 11, the more you understand that and see it as the Lord's job description, the more you'll see verses 2 through 4 as your job description and as your agenda, your heart's desire. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.